This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. to the Right Answers Podcast. My name is Noah Waspy, and before we get to everything, I have a poem to share with you. Creative Grades by Sarah Holbrook. Creative does, though not what's told, a student who is not enrolled in graduated chaptered classes where mindful competition passes for excellence. His recompense is not achieved by others brandishing respect. Creative grades its own neglect. Teachers, the Ohio Writing Project is now offering its spring of 2020 workshops, and there are quite a few. We have the Reading Contemporary Authors Group, um, and that will be starting on January 25th, so just a few more days before that one begins. And in this group, teachers will read current books, explore the processes that students use to gain understanding of a text, and analyzing styles that can translate to classroom instruction. Books are read approximately once a month for this class. We also have one coming up on March 7th and 8th of 2019. Um, This one's called Speaking and Listening, Sharing Our Voices and Reading the World. It's going to be at the Voice of America Learning Center in Westchester. And in this class, teachers will explore how speaking and listening works in the K-12 classroom and beyond school walls. There's also a class called Enriching Literacies, Supporting Gifted Students. This one will be occurring on March 21st, and it's also going to be a hybrid class so that part of it occurs online starting just two weeks after that March 21st date. That's the one credit option. There's also a two credit option where you would come in on March 21st and April 18th, along with having that hybrid online experience for one month in between those meeting dates. The meetings will be occurring at the Miami University Voice of America Learning Center in Westchester, as well as online. And in this workshop, teachers will read and review professional resources for supporting gifted students as well as exploring the structures, strategies, and practices that best create environments to enrich learning, develop inquiry, and build on passions. There's also the Summer of 2020 41st Annual Teaching of Writing Workshop. This one will be starting June 15th and it will go through July 10th of 2020. You will not want to miss this transformative experience. If you have any students that you know of who would benefit from extra writing enrichment, or if you have kids who would benefit from writing enrichment, OWP also offers a youth writing camp. This year it will be July 13th through 17th. To access uh, more information about these classes, you can just Google the Ohio Writing Project, or you could go to miamioh.edu and search Ohio Writing Project. So, teachers, this is the second-to-last installment of our movingwriters.org at NCTE miniseries. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, the Moving Writers team made a presentation at NCTE in November of 2019, and I happened to record it. Uh, Full disclosure, I am a Moving Writers writer, and this week you're going to hear from me, and you're also going to hear from the brilliant Stephanie Yachman. For the slideshow that went with each of the presentations, you can find the link in this episode's bio. 
So Stephanie Yachman is a high school teacher in Richmond, Virginia. And in her presentation, you'll hear some creative ways to combine reading and writing that not only saves time, but also paves the way for high impact instruction. First up, you'll be hearing from me, my presentation at NCTE. And in my presentation, I talked about ways you can make things easier and more effective when co-teaching with an intervention specialist. So here it is, part three of our Moving Writers at NCTE miniseries. I hope you enjoy. So I'm going to talk about workshop in a full inclusion classroom. Uh, last night I went on an adventure and it was, so, it was so much fun. I wrote about it and then halfway through I was like, oh, that's my new intro. So I'm going to read this to you now because I did not have enough time to memorize it. <laughs> Tonight I had a bit of an epiphany. You know those god-awful e-scooters that almost run you over on the sidewalk as they zip by? Well, tonight I took one for a spin, and it was epic. <laughs> I wanted to see what that thing was made of, so I put the handle to the metal, and about 20 feet in, right in front of me, there's this guy on the sidewalk. And I think that there's something wrong with him, because he's wobbling. And we did a dance, left, right, zigzag. And I had to jump off at the last second to avoid wrecking. <laughs> Good thing those things are so durable. So after I caught my breath, I laughed to myself. Isn't that just like teaching? Zipping from student to student, standard to standard, and sometimes we almost run some, run some kids over. <laughs> so we have intervention specialists and they're designed to help us not run kids over. <laughs> but sometimes, it ends up being like having two people on a scooter. You step on each other's toes, you try to zag when they're trying to zig, and kids get run over. So, co-teaching is supposed to require co-planning so that you don't run people over, so you don't step on each other's toes. But I think that if you've ever co-taught, or tried to co-teach with an intervention specialist, you know that it's not that easy because intervention specialists are often spread out across four, five, or more different teachers. They're not just yours. So how do you co-plan with someone that isn't just yours to plan with when they're spread so thin with all the paperwork and everything else? So I've had a really great opportunity to get better at co-teaching and learning how to do this process because we've had to move twice in the last three years. My wife is really smart. She's a scientist, so she keeps on having to go to different universities to get more degrees. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in Laramie, Wyoming, of all places. No offense to anybody who's from Wyoming. Um, the thing that I found the most helpful is I moved from school to school to Intervention specialists who are maybe not familiar at all with writing workshop, it's even harder to co-plan because the person you're working with doesn't know the structure that you're operating in. So I found it's helpful to rethink what am I trying to co-teach? Like which area of the lesson should I be co-teaching? If you're doing writing workshop, I used to think we need to be interacting during the many lessons, but really that's not where the high-impact teaching's happening, it's during the conferences. So as I rethink how to confer and co-teach through conferring, I found it helpful to have structures in place. And it starts with my conferring notebook. Actually, it's a binder. 
On the first page of the binder, you'll see a roster. That's my class roster. And after I confer with the student, I put a dot next to that student's name. That helps me see who's getting the most attention, who's getting the least attention. It also helps an intervention specialist who's just now walking into the room after an IEP meeting to see who's been met with and who hasn't. I keep records of each conference on sticky notes, which is something I learned from Teachers College Reading and Writing Project. And each sticky note goes inside the binder. The power of this is an intervention specialist, anyone, a parent could walk into the room and co-teach with me because they can see who's had a conference and what we talked about last. Here's how it works. Put the student's name, top left corner, that's J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> um, we put the date in the top right corner. And you can do this however you want. I do it this way because if I do it the same way every time, it's easier for someone else to pick up on, especially if they couldn't co-plan with me. We put the compliment, which is another way of saying the thing that you pointed out to the student that they're already doing as a reader or writer. And then we put the teaching point, which is, what the student and I decided should be their next step. This is really important because now an intervention specialist or I or anyone who's helping that day can look at the sticky notes, look at the date when that student was most recently conferred with, and then say, hey, it looks like last time uh, Mr. Waspy was working with you on digging deeper beyond the surface in your research. Can you show me where you're doing that? And they can pick up where you left off without any co-planning, or with minimal co-planning, I could say. Now, not everyone's comfortable with doing this. Like, this process, because it's, like, I'm doing it, I'm making it really specific and structured so it's easy for anyone to pick up on, but it's hard to master that process. Like, Carl Anderson's written multiple books about it. It's that nuanced. So I found a process can be really helpful in, to scaffold the co-teaching. So first we plan. I give the teacher an overview of what I envision writing workshop looking like. Uh, the co-teacher gives some feedback and pitches in other ideas because I want to be as collaborative as possible. It's not I'm the teacher and she's a less teacher. It's we're co-teachers. So we plan. We talk about how the wor workshop will work. And then we implement. I do a mini lesson and if she's not comfortable jumping in right away, she follows me to the first student and listens in as I demonstrate what my writing conferences or reading conferences look like. It's not that mine's the best way, but if we are conferring in the same way and using common language, it's easier for kids and they're not hoping that they'll get one of us or the other of us. They're getting the same one either way. And then in my experience, the teacher, the co-teacher is not always comfortable with jumping in to confer on their own after that. So I will offer to shadow, and I'll be the person who sits next to them or stands next to them. And if they get stuck, I could whisper in a suggestion. If they get stuck, I can say, hey, and I can interrupt as if we were both working together. And then at the end, in order to sustain the process, we check in. We check in as we're training, but we also check in at the end of every session of conferring before we do the debrief or the share with the class. We check in and say, hey, did any conferences go weird? Um, 
Are there any red flags? What are our next steps? And then we move on to the share. This process makes it easier for me. It makes it easier for the co-teacher. It takes some of the stress out of learning how to co-teach. Super helpful. Next steps is you get more and more comfortable with each other. You can remove some of those scaffolds and maybe the co-teacher can feel comfortable pulling a small group. Maybe the co-teacher can feel more comfortable delivering some of the mini lessons. But in the end, it doesn't have to be like two people on the same scooter. It can be like two people with a map of the town on separate scooters covering more ground. You're getting more feedback to students this way. They're getting twice as much feedback, twice as much assistance, twice as much help. That's co-teaching. So next up we have Stephanie. Stephanie Yachman and I teach a ninth grade reading writing workshop and 12th grade IB at Trinity Episcopal School in Richmond, Virginia. And I am going to talk to you today about the problem. I have so many books to teach. Where do I fit in the writing workshop? So in my 12th grade IB class, the IB has certain requirements as to number of, of texts that we're going to teach. And we have some high stakes testing at the end of the course that my students need to be prepared for. But I still really believe in writing workshop, and I think that you know, test prep writing isn't the only kind of writing that my IB students should be doing. So how do I fit that in? And my quickest answer for that is I'm going to turn my course texts, the literature that my students need to be reading, into my mentor texts. So now I'm going to treat our, our course writers as our mentor writers. And we're going to read those novels. We're going to think about conventions of genre that students need to know about, but we're also going to look about, we're going to look at the craft of those writers, and we're going to write like those writers. So what does that look like? So my students uh, this fall were reading George Orwell's essays. We were reading Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's The Thing Around Your Neck. If you aren't reading that yet, you should. It's fantastic. And we're reading Seamus Heaney's poetry. And when we're reading a genre, we are writing a genre. So when we finished up Orwell's essays, students were writing literary essays. It could have been a travel essay, could have been a political essay, could have been more of an op-ed. A lot of my students gravitated this year towards Orwell's Case for the Open Fire, where he's writing about like how lovely an open fire is in the home. And it's also this commentary on life in post-war England, and they figured that out and discovered it, which was awesome. That's a whole other story for another time. But it was really exciting to read their work about that. I think what I'm most excited and proud of this year is we wrote short stories to go with The Thing Around Your Neck, not because I had decided to assign it, but because in early conferring with my students this year, they told me they wanted to write short stories. When I asked them, we were looking at a paper from last year, IB English is a, a two-year course, uh, when I was asking them, what would you really want to write this year? Student after student said, I want to write some fiction. I want to write a short story. And I had been playing around with the idea of teaching the thing around your neck, and that sold it for me. I said, OK, we're reading short stories. We're going to write short stories. It came from them. 
Uh, Seamus Heaney's poetry, I have a star up there because when I was doing a write-alike with Orwell's essays for the first time, Rebecca had published a piece on moving writers about teaching Heaney's poetry and in addition to having students write a poem using some of Heaney's conventions, she asked them to reflect on what do I know better about Heaney now that I've written like him? And that reflective piece is so essential to doing a write-alike. Uh, it changed my Orwell assignment, made a big difference, so thanks Rebecca for that. And then when we study drama next semester, students will write a scene or they will write um, a, a soliloquy. So here are the steps to make it work, because I know you're sitting there thinking, like, what are the logistics? How does this work? It's pretty simple. We're going to identify hallmarks of the writer's style. So your basic mentor text work, right? We're going to look at what are the interesting things that this writer is doing. Here's your way to teach conventions of a genre. And you're going to look at how does the writer use those particular conventions. We might practice with mentor sentences or mentor paragraphs. I'll assign the write-alike. And then we have that reflection piece. How does writing like the author change our understanding of the text and the writer? And so what does our schedule look like? My units are about five weeks. I like to stretch things out. So if you really looked at my calendar, it might be longer than that. I'm one of those where I'm like, we can just keep going. And then I go, oh, no, we can't, and shrink it up. But first two weeks are usually just studying the literature, right? We're, we're reading a few poems or we're reading a few essays. We're talking about them together. We're looking at certain passages. And we're maybe learning about conventions of the genre. Then, like Mike was talking about, I'm going to introduce the write-alike. So hey, you are going to be writing this. Start thinking about it. And we might do a little brainstorming. Um, this year, when we were working on short stories, I asked every student to write the first sentence of a story and put it up on a padlet. And we talked about what's exciting about these first sentences. Which first sentences do you want to read more from? And so what makes a good first sentence of a story? Uh, I also shared Poets and Writers has a writing prompt every month, or a couple of fiction writing prompts. You can find those online. And I gave students the website and said, just scroll through prompts and see what's really exciting and start writing with it. So that's the kind of brainstorming that we did. Then we'll do uh, maybe a day of drafting amidst continued study of the literary work and maybe another day of drafting. And then finally, because another part of my problem is I'm working with students who have very rigorous schedules. So for them, writing is, what day is it due? Okay, I'll start it at 6 p.m. the night before I have to turn it in. And it'll sound pretty good, but that's how I'll put it together, <laughs> right? So I wanted them to pace themselves. And so I gave them a deadline for a draft or a plan. I have up here that digital documents are your friends because uh, for, the, for my short story unit, there was not a lot of time for individual conferring, but what I was able to do is look through Google Docs, give encouraging comments, because really, I was very hands-off, and they were really incredible, because I think it was the first time in a while they'd had a chance to do some creative writing. So what they were turning in was outstanding. And Adichie is just a really, really good model. There, she does things in her fiction that are really easy for students to connect with. Like, she writes in the second person. Everybody's telling them to stop using you, and here they could use you. And so they really jumped on that. Um, 
So I looked at their Google Doc drafts, left an encouraging comment, left a question where I wasn't quite certain of things, invited them to confer with me um, if they felt like they needed some more assistance, and then just sort of let them go with rubric in hand. And now they turned in their final writings for short stories uh, on Friday, so I'll be reading those on the train ride home, which will be a great way to culminate NCTE, I think. So that's what the schedule looks like. So here are some examples. My animation's a little out, out of order, so I apologize. But here's an example of a student who's looking at, she was really sensitive to how Orwell thought out loud on the page, and so tried to do that in writing about this memory of watching these boys squash a caterpillar, and what that was teaching her about life when she was little. It's an incredible piece. And then up here, I had a young man who was working with the epigram. He really gravitated towards these pithy sentences that Orwell was using. So he's got, there is big money in division. He was interested in, like, why can't people pay more attention to context than sound bites in politics? And he's like, there's big money in division. It's like, ooh, I hope you run for office someday because you, you're thinking it through. And then here, up at the top, um, a student's writing about using flashbacks and how that creates and relieves some tension in the story. And then there's a reflection down here about using a mirror as a symbol and what effect they were hoping to achieve and how they were gonna use that symbol to group some ideas together. They're not writing literary analysis essays, but they are doing analysis and reflecting on their work and the choices that they're making. And so finally, uh, these are soliloquies that students looked at. And they had the option, they could write a soliloquy for a character who didn't have them, have one. So that's requiring them to think about characterization, thinking about subtext, what's going on in a character's head in this scene that they're not saying aloud. So Ophelia doesn't get much to say. So they gave her a soliloquy. Or at the start of our study of Hamlet, I asked students, what's bugging you? <laughs> what questions are roiling around in your brain right now? And I just asked them to keep returning to those questions as the, as the unit continued to help them construct a soliloquy for themselves in, in the play of their lives. If they step to the edge of the stage, what are they gonna say? And so I got this really amazing piece um, where a student was reflecting on, since kindergarten, she's been thinking about careers and pressure. You know, they had career day in kindergarten. And now here she is getting ready to apply for college and all the pressure that she's feeling. So. Just some really amazing, inspiring pieces that if you open up to literary analysis coming in a whole bunch of different forms can be really incredible. The, the classroom can look like that on the right. So thanks very much.